0: The nonprofit MBA purpose is to provide new business insights and fresh creative ideas for executive directors and their teams that will help them improve their organization. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I will be your host for today's nonprofit MBA podcast. Uh, this is like my 420th episode. It's been a great experience. Uh, Doing it, I, I, I just can't believe, like six years ago, I started it, and I said, oh, let's see what happens, and we're in six years later. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm co-founder of Financing Solutions. And Financing Solutions, over the last 12 years now, has been the leading provider of lines of credit for small nonprofits in the United States. If you're interested in learning about a, non, a line of credit for your nonprofit, please visit us at nonprofitmbapodcast.com um and you can get a free quote there it's easy to get it you can see exactly if you're qualifying for how much and how much it costs and all this other stuff it's just a very popular product very hard for nonprofits to get uh, a line of credit and that's what we do for a living uh today also we have a sponsor a raise a-r-a-i-z-e uh arrays is really I really, I really believe in what they do and so much so that one of the nonprofits that I'm a board member on is where we're now moving over to them. They uh, it's um, accounting software specifically made for small to medium size uh, nonprofits. I'm a firm believer that you should be using accounting software that's made for your industry. QuickBooks is not a really good solution and arrays specifically made for nonprofits by CPAs. So if you're interested in learning more about a raise, you can go to their website at araize.com or call 866-840-7449 and you can speak to Joe and tell him that I sent you. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Chad Barger from uh, Productive uh, Fundraising. And today's topic is going to be Seven Keys to Nonprofit Fundraising Success. Uh, Chad uh, helps nonprofits professionals across the U.S. and Canada fundraise more efficiently and effectively. He's a top rated speaker, master trainer and coach. Chad owns the firm Productive Fundraising, which specializes in teaching the latest research based fundraising tactics, and making them approachable for small community based nonprofit organizations. He also offers free monthly seminars as well. And Chad, welcome again to today's uh nonprofit MBA podcast.
1: Thank you, Steven. Uh it's great to be back and uh looking forward to our conversation today. When you do
0: the, the monthly webinars, what uh what do you cover?
1: You know, we kind of walk through everything over the course of the year. Um, Try to be pretty timely. So in September, we're going to cover how to optimize your end of calendar year fundraising appeal. Um, In December, we might be looking at fundraising planning because we're getting ready for for next year. And then uh, just last month, we did monthly giving because this kind of March, April timeframe is typically the best time of year to try to convert those end of year donors to monthly donors. So timely, but very tactical. You know, how do I do this in my small to mid sized shop? Do you
0: find that, I mean, how long have you been doing this now?
1: Uh, this is all I've ever done. So this is like year 26 for me. Yeah, so <laughs> you, 20 you, years as a frontline fundraiser and then fell into this whole uh, consulting trainer coach gig.
0: You, you find if you had taken, I know, I'm sure you hadn't done webinars for 25 years. Um, I, I'm sure it came on a little later, but um, if you would, if you would look at every single month, January, February, March the topics that you that you have would would and if you went back fifteen years would those same topics have been discussed then? I, I mean, think some of them, maybe eighty percent.
1: Yeah, but I mean, definitely a lot of the new online engagement tools. Um, I mean, monthly giving wasn't a thing back then, um, so there, there's certainly evolution, but. You know, we, we still would have been talking about fundraising events. We still would have been talking about direct mail. We obviously would have been talking about face-to-face uh, donor visits and, and building those relationships. Um, but yeah, slow evolution. But I find I, I kind of have a month monthly cycle of, of 12 webinars. I'm usually swapping one or two out a year that just don't have as much resonance, or something else has uh, Take place. become more yeah. of a priority. Yeah,
0: cool. All right, listen. Let's get right into the, the topic today, which is you know the the keys to nonprofit fundraising success—the seven keys. So let's start off with number one. What is the the number one key to nonprofit fundraising success?
1: Yeah, um, let me set this up a tiny bit first, and then we'll we'll dive right into number one. But I work primarily with small to mid-sized community-based groups, so you know they have. An executive director, and maybe that's it, or maybe there's a part-time development person or an assistant. So there's just not a lot of capacity to do all the things, um, as I like to say. So I try to find ways that they can really focus and do couple key things really well, and then maybe you don't have to do everything. You don't have to do a whole peer-to-peer component and, you know, 17 events and, and all of this. So that's what kind of birthed this idea and this guide and um, why I focused in just because I saw that it's such a pain point for for so many small groups. Well, it's, also,
0: one, tru- it, so it's also true too, I would say is it's it's very easy to get distracted with a million ideas. But the key to a successful organization is all about execution, isn't it? So it's better to do one thing and be great at it than to do 15 things and be not so great at them all, right? So I like the idea that you're narrowing it down.
1: Yeah. I teach um, fundraising at two different colleges and I use the same textbook. It's Nonprofit Fundraising 101, uh, edited by Heyman. It has 24 chapters, uh, each with a different way you can fundraise. Um, And my goal is to take it from the 24 to, all right, let's focus just here and exactly what you said. Let's do them really well rather than doing everything mediocre or even poorly, which is what I see a lot. So that first one is actually not even really viewed as fundraising for everyone. And that is to adopt a retention first fundraising philosophy. So before you even send out a solicitation, ask anyone to contribute, um, even, you know, recruit new board members, I want you to build that retention system. So I'm talking about, you know, what happens after someone makes a gift? What happens is, I mean, certainly they should get that gift acknowledgement letter. Everyone should, not just the people that have given over $250 that we have to send one to per the IRS. But, you know, and is that a... You know, on behalf of the board of directors of ABC organization, thank you for your $25 contribution made on August 1st. No, I want some heartfelt thanks and, and telling stories and really starting that relationship from day one. Um, and then from there, I want to build out a, a cycle, almost like a, what we'd call a funnel in the sales world a little bit of what is going to happen. Um, when is the next time I'm hoping to solicit them? maybe six months down the line, three months down the line. And then I need touch points in there. That's going to make them feel um, important, uh, like a trusted partner, not just a piggy bank. We're going to educate, inform, and invite them to get more involved. Um, so we, kind of going back on research um, done by Penelope Burke and Cygnus Research on you know what do donors want to hear from us in order to stick around. And we have that fundraising law of seven that comes out of there. They want to hear from us seven times between asks where we're not asking them for anything. We're just making them feel like that trusted partner in this process. So before we even solicit, I want that set up. I want to know what that looks like because once the money starts coming, you're just going to try to get more money. You're not going to focus on that. Um, We see it, you know, year in, year out with the donor retention rate in the U.S. stuck at 43%. Um, You know, the average nonprofit loses over half its donors each year. So let's fix that before we even get started.
0: Okay. What's the next one?
1: Next one. So once we're going to solicit, let's go back to the tried and true, uh, what's been working since the, the dawn of fundraising time, and that's mail. But I don't want to just send any old mail. I want response-optimized mail appeals, right? From the beginning, it's set up to boost response. It's not just something we shove out the door, or, oh, i got to write the mail appeal letter. I'm going to do it in one afternoon. It's a well-thought-out process. Um, for end-of-calendar-year appeals, I like to start them in September. And I say, September is for story. What is your story? Because that is the key to a successful fundraising appeal. It's not the ask. It's telling me a compelling story that is going to make me want to participate. So uh, starting in September and then in October, we're actually going to write it. And in November, we're going to get the package together. Because the package, what it goes in, is just as important as the letter itself. you got to get me to open it before you even have a chance for me to read your compelling story that's going to drive me to action. So looking at those two pieces, you know, what's my package? You know, can how can I make it look more and more like a piece of personal correspondence? And how can I make it stand down in the mailbox? So when people are coming in from the mailbox, maybe they're in their garage, standing over their recycle bin, doing the daily mail sort, I want to go into the read later pile and not into the recycle bin.
0: Maxwell Halasnake. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, and on the letter side, uh, we really need to tell that compelling story. And uh, we have the phrase that we make the donor the hero. So we use that you language. Um, And we don't always use this kind of language. I'm not uh, one for donor-centric language everywhere. Uh, We want to involve lots of other people. But when we're talking specifically to a donor, let's make them a part of it. You know, because of you. Without you, this wouldn't be possible. Because of your support. And then that ask. It's a compelling ask. It's a specific ask, ideally a specific ask amount based on their past support. Uh, We're maybe asking them to join us, and we repeat that at the very end of that letter with a PS. A lot of people push back on the PS, but when you actually do look at the research, 90% of people will read a PS. And I'm not going to ask them to come to my event or remember my organization in their will. I'm going to repeat that ask. Would you consider making a generous donation of $500 today? The kids are counting on you.
0: Gotcha. Okay. What's the next one?
1: Number three, those events, those fundraising events. Many nonprofits spend a lot of time doing fundraising events. Um, I've been in really small shops where it's one or two people and they have eight events. You know, they're just constantly in event mode. And while events serve a purpose, they're not the best way to raise money. They don't have the highest return on investment. So if I'm going to do events, I want to focus. So I say just two events per year with a focus on sponsors, not attendees. Mm -hmm. So just two. That keeps the time down. Um, I find most groups can pull off two. And the real beauty with events is it's kind of the best way to get new people engaged with our organization. You know, they're public, they're fun. It's easy for our board members, our volunteers to invite somebody to our events. And then uh, rather than worrying about selling $150 tickets, I'd much rather worry about selling $1,500, $10,000 sponsorships. Just with a couple of those, it doesn't really matter what the attendees do. I can fill those seats. You know, I can invite volunteers, donors, anyone to be the guest of the organization if I have those sponsorship dollars ahead of time. And what's the key there? Starting early. Everybody struggles with sponsorships because they try to start two months before an event of recruiting sponsors. Um, I don't know if anybody's walked through that process lately, but most, uh, like I'll take a regional bank, for example. You contact them, then they invite you to apply through their online portal. Then you get put into the queue to be reviewed by somebody. Once you pass that, then you make it to the meeting. The meeting seems to always get canceled and you get bumped to the next month. So it's like four months typically to even hear from them. So if you're not starting till two months out, you don't stand a chance. So I like, you know, six months generally starting before. And for some of those big ones, those presenting sponsorships, you know, it's like nine months plus sometimes. It's almost like you have the event and then you have the follow-up meeting right away to, to line up that following year. So just two events per year with sponsors, not attendees being the focus.
0: Okay, next one.
1: Number four, outsource your grant writing. Unless you are a 20-year you know, grant writing pro that has now assumed a bigger operation, bigger role, uh, I guarantee you there's someone in your community that can write your grants better than you. And what I find that grant writing does is it ties the executive director, the development professional to their desk. And the most successful development people don't spend much time at their desk because they're out in the community talking with donors, uh, growing relationships, finding new opportunities. So it's usually the one piece that you can easily outsource. Um, now, it's not a outsource and don't monitor it. You still have to monitor the process. But almost every community has someone that you know served as 20 years in-house and now does outsource grant writing they're typically very economical. Um, every market differs, but my favorite example is I will gladly spend $500 to have a grant written that could get me $10,000. And especially when that person knows that foundation has already submitted 15 proposals to them this year, knows what they're looking for and can make sure our proposal is optimized that way.
0: Let me ask you a question on that. Cause I, I, I don't, um, I don't have familiarity with, um, Having done hired a grant writer and them applying, I have lots of grant writers that are on this podcast. But to me, it makes a lot of sense to just bring on a grant writer because when they win, when we win, I pay the grant writer. Now I'm you know, I'm not saying we don't pay them upfront, but and but to me it's a it's it's a numbers game. We're going to apply for a certain amount of grants. We're going to win 25% of them, I don't know, 10% of them, right? It's just a numbers game. Now, yes, I do understand that it, can, that it could be restricted, the grants, um, but is that fair to say it's kind of a win-win scenario for me to hire a grant writer and go to apply for grants as, as long as I probably have my organization's story together?
1: Yeah. If you have the pieces in place, it can certainly work. Um, if you're talking about bringing a grant writer in-house full no, or I half-time. I about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that's,
1: that's a volume situation. Like if you have right. enough grants to do it, then I'm yeah. all for a position. Sure. But most sure. small shops, they're like, you know, we do 10 to 15 a year um, and they always hit all at the same time and just completely like take three weeks away from me and then I'm behind on everything else. So, yeah, it's totally a numbers game. But unfortunately, a lot of I hate to pick on them, but especially boards of directors of small nonprofits don't like to do that upfront investment in fundraising. See that, to no. me,
0: I would be like if in my board meeting, right, I'd be like, if let's say the director came to our board meeting and said, I need someone to donate from the board or someone that we know who we can go to and say, is, listen, I need $5,000 so sure. that I can hire a grant writer and we can apply. And I believe if we apply for these five awards, we'll win one of them. And therefore we'll we'll get $10,000 in money and,
1: right.
0: you know, whatever it is, you know. You
1: and know. then that relieves the money over here that yeah. we can use to pay yeah, for I mean, future I just, grant
0: writing. I, yeah, yeah, I mean, I if I was a donor, I'd be like, yeah, that makes complete sense. And let's face it. A lot of your donors are business people. They get the, the idea behind it. I investing.
1: think a lot of time that business case is just not made to them. They're, they're just trained to, okay, it's nonprofit. We got to cut costs, cut costs, stay lean, worrying about overhead and expense ratios and all that stuff that just limits the capacity of the sector all the yeah. time. And truly the number you said, is just about right. Like if you could put up $5,000 to do an initial investment with an outsourced grant writer, and they're gonna get you know five to ten grants in for you, depending on market. I, I think you're rolling and you're set.
0: Yeah, I um, I do know that uh, on prior podcasts I've had, the biggest ask problem that people do is they don't ask for unrestricted funds. Mm-hmm. It's you know they're so afraid of the idea of people thinking that you know. It's because of, you know, I was the United way or yeah. you know, a lot of those issues where, stills, you, know, yep. you know, 97% of the funds are going into, uh, I don't know what it is, but like administrative costs and people know that story and they get, they get pissed. They, they're like, no, I wanted to go to the people who are going to use it, you know? So.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, you know, if we just, just could focus there. And, I, you know, I've seen, If it doesn't say you can't include administrative costs, include it, put 10, 15, 20% admin in, and if they don't want to do it, they'll bulk, but at least try. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 cool. All right, what's the next one?
1: All right, number five. So I just freed up some time for you. We uh, we're only doing two events a year instead of six and you're outsourcing your grant writing. So you got a little bit of time. So now you can finally meet with your donors. You can finally go out there. That's what I hear all the time. You know, Chad, I would love to meet with my donors, you know, coffees, lunches sounds great, but I just got too much to do. Well, we saved some time. What's that? I'm sorry. I I, I apologize. My fault. Go ahead. No problem. Um, Yeah. So we've saved some time. So let's use that to meet with our donors. So I say Build personal relationships with the top 10% of your donors. If you can't get to the whole top 10, you know, top five, what's your top 20? You know, just time to go out and deepen those relationships because our number one rule in fundraising is people give to people, not emails, you know, people give to people that they know, like, and trust. Um, I've heard it changed to people that they know, love, and trust. You know, it's just that that key, that personal connection, and in this, uh, whatever we're calling it, post-COVID era, we see the value of relationships even more. I mean, yeah. we, we had those lonely two years or so where it didn't happen. Um, and Zoom donor calls, I don't care how many blog posts I've read. They're just horrible. You know, yeah. it, it's hard to have that personal connection and build that. So if you've got time. Go do that. Get to know your top donors. That's where the major gifts are going to come from by deepening yeah. those relationships.
0: You know, also in you in the if you haven't worked for the in the for profit world, <clears throat> one of the biggest issues you have in the for profit world or, world is the president of the company or the owner. They lose touch with their customers. If the yeah. if the organization gets big enough, they lose touch. And so, you know, thirty years ago, I started my career working for Xerox, which for, for those of you who aren't old. <laughs> um, Xerox was the Google of its day. And um, the CEO made a point, you know, this is a $15 billion company at the time. Every once a month, he would travel with the force to go meet customers. And you know, it sounds like a no brainer. But for profit companies have a problem staying in touch with the best clients. And so nonprofits have a problem staying in touch with their best donors. And you know what it does too. It, I kind of see that it re-energizes you too, right? Cause it's about yeah. people, but then when you're in a, when you're in a, a leadership role, it's a lot of times you're dealing with strategy meetings and, and administrative issues. And you just, you just, it, the people, part of it, isn't there as much.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm as you talk. I'm thinking of that TV show Undercover Boss. You yeah, know, where the, the boss definitely. goes undercover, dressed up, and yeah. they're I an didn't know for a while, and then they're out with people, and yeah. you know they just want to reconnect and see what it's it's really like. And yeah, um, I often often encourage people to do that. Like, be a secret shopper for another nonprofit in your community, and you trade. They're a secret shopper for you, so you sign. You make like a twenty five dollar contribution, and then you're on their mailing list, and you just kind of monitor that experience. And then like twice a year, you meet for lunch and coffee and just say, Hey, you sent me like three things in one week. And then I didn't hear from you for three months. And you're just kind of monitoring that donor experience for them.
0: Uh, Yeah. And I, um, by the way, I don't want to lead everybody to think that this is easy, right? I mean, really get this number five of getting out and meeting with donors. It's, it's not easy, you know, Um, especially when you're talking about running two fundraising events, getting out mailers, and we're also talking about small nonprofits. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge, but if you could set a goal for yourself exactly. of going out once a month with one donor, just, you can't get to two until you've done one, mm-hmm. right? So, the old
1: uh, Peter Drucker adage, right? What, yep. what gets measured gets managed. So That's right. let's set a goal and measure something.
0: Right, and you can't manage something that can't be measured. So yeah, yeah. All right, what's number six?
1: Number six. All right. We're focusing our attention on that top 10%, which means unfortunately we don't have the time to focus on the 90% below them. I don't like to say that, that bottom word, but you know, the the under there Um, as much as I would love to spend face-to-face time with them as well. It's just really hard to do in a small shop, you know, colleges and things they'll get annual fund and mid-level folks and they can do more, but we have to leverage our time. Um, I do like focusing some time on first-year donors. Uh, I think that's worth worth doing as well, regardless of giving amount. But uh, with that other ninety percent, try to convert as much uh, many of them as possible to recurring monthly giving. Yeah, um, and this just has to be an ongoing focus everywhere in our organization. Um, every single ask is monthly first. You know, even in our mail which seems like it's not the place to do it. We're going to ask them to do monthly. Um, It's actually working really well now to embed a QR code right in the middle of a fundraising appeal letter that can take them to the giving page. And guess what? Recurring is auto-selected and ready to go. But we have to tell them why. And uh, that's another benefit of the last few years because we have a word that really resonates now and really ties in great with recurring monthly giving, and that's sustainability. All right. Your monthly gift ensures that our operations are sustainable and will always be here for the people in need. It just kind of resonates and, and clicks a little better than it used to. But uh the average recurring, I said it earlier, retention rate for all donors is 43%. For recurring monthly donors, it's 85% the day they sign on. And if they're still with you five years later, it's 95%. Wow. It just keeps coming.
0: That's unbelievable. It sure saves you a lot of time too and have to go back and try to get that other uh, 57% people back in the queue. So, I mean, yeah. look at it a time saver, even more so than the money saving part of it, you know, because then you can get, use that 57% of your time to um, get other people, right?
1: Yeah. Other people, so. more donor visits, uh, you know, all those, let's just reinvest <laughs> in what's working um, with that time. But People give up on monthly giving because they'll send an email appeal once a year asking their current donors to switch to monthly giving. They get one, two, maybe zero, and they're like, oh, we tried. But it's just all the time. You know, every appeal, every spot, we ask that first and that social proof really helps too. Let's feature current recurring donors talking about why they give on an ongoing basis.
0: Yeah, I, I, um, I wish we, someone could come up with a different word than sustainability because I don't think that means a lot to people. I, well maybe it's just because I'm a businessman and I, and what really resonates with me is when I hear, and I do reoccurring a lot uh, when I make donations uh, because it's nice for the nonprofit know, to know that money is going to come in on a monthly consistent basis so, you know, I know that's what sustainability means, but you yeah. know what it really means more to me is cash flow.
1: <laughs> right. Like if
0: someone says, listen, well, this really helps my cat Maybe it's because I'm in the business of providing. Yeah, I think for credit, non-business
1: you know? people, sustainability and cash flow were both jargon words that, you know, didn't really have much meaning, but we just heard that sustainability word so much that it they finally kind of caught on there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I tell the story that I had two clients um, when COVID hit, that both had over 60% of their donors giving monthly. Um, they were anomalies, fairly recent startups. They knew this worked and, and that was kind of their business model from the beginning. Those were the only two groups that did not call me in a panic within three days. Right? We didn't talk until their regularly scheduled coaching call. And when we did, they're like, you know, this stinks, but We'll be okay. We have this base. We might not be able to do our fall event if that happens. You know, we'll do a non-event. We'll find a way. But you know, it it just really completely changes the model, and I think completely changes the stress level for a lot of organizations.
0: Are, are there any nonprofits who only do recurring revenue streams?
1: Um, I've never heard of only, simply because if somebody sends you a check, what are you going to do? Send it back? Yeah, and say, yeah, you know yeah, Go yeah. to our. <laughs> yeah. But there's certainly ones that make it difficult or more of a challenge to do that like you can't do it online um you would have to maybe pull my 990 to get a mailing address because that's not online um or maybe they
0: just do like um uh, it defaults to recurring right
1: yeah yeah and that certainly um is best practice even though a lot of people have a challenge with it um i'm trying to remember the statistic i think it's a 35% increase in uh, monthly giving enrollments if you have it pre-checked on your website. Um, that's researched by the the late, great John Hayden. And um, you know it's just people are like, oh, I don't want to dupe them into it. Well, you don't dupe them into it. You have a disclaimer right there. You know, you're know, you signing up for monthly. Um, when you go to the next page, there's an extra checkbox that they check to say, I understand I'm signing up as a monthly supporter, but the mere fact that it's pre-selected and we're telling them why can really help there.
0: Yeah, I get it. All right. What's the last one? Number seven.
1: Number seven. The, uh, the hardest one for most people, they do all this work and they throw themselves into this job and uh, they're passionate about their cause. They're, they're helping the kids, the animals, whoever, and they do it at the expense of themselves. So yeah. number seven is prioritizing self-care. And I include that as one of the seven keys because I truly believe it. I'm not, you know, just putting it there. I almost put it first, but then I thought people would just kind of tune out. But it's got to be in there because you do all this stuff, you know, as you said, it's already a lot. And if you're not going to take time for you, whatever that means, uh, exercise, spirituality, sleep, hobbies, family, whatever charges you up, I want that on your calendar. I want, you know, 2-3 hours a week this time to make sure this happens. Cuz I guarantee you if you do that, you will do all other of these six things with so much more energy and focus and attention that, you know, it'll just magnify your results even even more.
0: People who have done these seven steps well, what have you noticed about them?
1: Frankly, they're happier. Um, you know, like the passion for the job, like, I mean, I'm a fundraising coach and consultant. People don't come to me unless something's wrong, right? You know, it's not like, oh, things are amazing. Let's go find the the coach. So, you know, they're coming in with a pain point. So we, we work to fix that and then, uh, might work them towards this program or components of it that makes sense for their operation. And once, even once one of these items is humming well, I notice a distinct change that, you know, it's just, it's a little easier And they're seeing more success and that self-assurance and reward comes back. And, you know, I'm taking time for me too. And life's just a little better. Yeah, I remember why I started working in this sector and for this cause in the first place. Um, And it's not just a job anymore.
0: What about the reverse? People who, you know, you've brought on to coach. And they just do a bad job in these seven steps, even after you've done your tremendous job of coaching. I'm sure, uh, but you know that they, they really struggle with it. What what is it about those people that they just they're just not doing a jo- good job in it?
1: I mean, all over the it's all over the place. Different reasons. I always joke that I, I really should have a counseling degree. For you know, about a third of the calls are are dealing with you know personal issues or staff issues that uh, just kind of those barriers in the way. Um, sometimes it's just a lack of trust that it can't be this easy. Um, sometimes it's board or other pressure to go in different directions. Um, a little bit of everything, but you know, it's, it's just, it, something is blocking them from being able to focus on this. Um, and you know, sometimes it's a committee member or former founder that says, you know, we've always done it this way. We can't change. Um, but yeah, it's just always there. And frankly, um, that's not why I coach. So those relationships last about three months and then we kind of graciously part ways. And I say, you know, if you think you're able to do this, come on back, but I'm not going to waste my time and your money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: How,
0: how, how, how much time does it take for you to typically coach somebody?
1: So going through this program, um, I like to work with somebody kind of six to nine months Where they'll, you know, focus, you know, two to three weeks really learning the ins and outs of that. Um, And then we're going to take some time together to how is that best implemented in your shop. And I can walk through each step one at a time. And over the course of, you know, six months, if they're really focused and have the time nine months if they got to do a million other things sometimes it can go a little longer but um certainly in a year you can put this in place in your shop and have a much more successful and frankly easier year that following year
0: and it's it's once every two weeks uh how many times do you meet with them
1: well that's the beauty is that uh, people stress out about that so it's self-paced um, okay. once you do the work Once you've learned and know and have thought about how you might implement it, then we touch base and we work on the next step Um, because I, you know, standard coaching calls, about a third of them get rescheduled because, you know, something just blows up that day. So it's your pace, but um, I'm there to walk along right with you.
0: So uh, I kept notes as we were talking, so I kind of want to summarize and then uh, uh, Chad, if you can just correct me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Number one was, you know, work with current donors, you know, really kind of make sure Yeah, retention's number one. Number two is kind of have a plan, you know, have a plan how you're going to, I guess, assume like how you're going to do the next 12 months, uh, what you're going to do every single month. You know,
1: it's got response, optimize appeals in it to uh, to make sure that happens. We talked about
0: mailers and that, you know, those type of things. Um, Number three was events, plan two, you know, two events, not seven plan two or whatever it yeah. was Plan two. focus
1: on those sponsors
0: yeah. right uh focus on the sponsors right which i thought was a great idea number four uh outsource grant writing you got it um and we talked a lot about that you know like the advantages and uh, how looking at as an investment versus a cost uh number five uh you know well i have meeting with donors um, oh, on a, on a monthly basis, right? Yeah, focusing yeah. on that
1: top 10%. And I loved your idea of set a goal. You know, yeah, everybody month. can do one a month. I don't yeah. care how busy you are. You yeah. can do one a month. You need to eat as well. So do a lunch once a month and make it happen. Then work up the two, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and keep
0: in mind too, is like, even if, like, let's say you have, a, I'm sure you have, if the organization has a small staff, you can also go to one of the people who are working with you and say, I want you to hold me accountable to this. Or I want you to schedule this for me. You know, I just want to see one person once a month for the next three months. And, you know, I need you to kind of make me uh, make sure I stay on track on this. Hold me accountable. You know
1: how they happen in higher ed, in big college shops? It is a key metric in their compensation. Like in Mm -hmm. order to be considered for a bonus this year, you have to meet your physical. Yeah. Um, I had one for many years. What gets measured gets managed. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, I,
0: I love meeting with my person from my college um, as, as a donor. You know, um, I was a donor. Um, then number number six is focus on the top 10%. So focus on the top 10%, 10% of your donors. Yeah,
1: six was the top 10% through those monthly meetings, uh, oh. meeting with the donors. Six, uh, five actually. Six is uh, that monthly program. Making sure we got that oh, monthly, monthly program that that's first. right. Yeah.
0: Reoccurring. Yeah. 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 Uh, reoccurring, uh, donations, uh, st- interesting statistics, 43%. Wait, no, that's what you lose people. But when you have a reoccurring revenue, uh, from yeah. somebody on a monthly basis, what was the statistics?
1: 85% from the day they click give monthly. And then 96
0: uh, and took, after five years.
1: Yeah. yeah it just grows unbelie-
0: unbelievable. They're also
1: the most likely to make uh, legacy or planned gifts. Wow. They're just always with you, you know?
0: Wow. And then number seven, prioritizing self-care as right. well, which was um, something I actually say at the end of every single podcast for this uh, nonprofit MBA podcast.
1: Yeah. We're um, horrible and, at it. I think we're worse than corporate folk, you know? just Well, uh,
0: it's obvious why. I mean, if you, you really, really care about your cause and you put that above everything else. and But you can't be uh, a
1: martyr for your cause. cause yeah. Otherwise you're going to burn out in the sector. You know, I, I look back, 25 years ago, the people I started with and how many of them are still in the nonprofit field? And it's definitely less than half.
0: Gotcha. Well, I mean, that was great stuff. I'd like to thank so very much all the time we have for today. And I'd like to thank so very much Chad Barger from Productive Fundraising for coming on to today's podcast. And if you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. And if you like today's podcast, please give us a review. It really helps us get the word out. And, uh, and, uh, if you're looking for a line of credit, of course, please, uh, visit our website at nonprofitmbapodcast.com and Chad, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that?
1: Yeah. Best place is productivefundraising.com. Um, I actually have a free download right on the front page there with a uh, printout guide for these seven keys to fundraising success. And I go by fundraiser Chad on pretty much all the social networks.
0: Yes, and your last name is spelled B A R G E R, just so that everybody that knows is correct. As well. Yeah, well, very good. Thanks for coming on today. Sure
1: thing, Stephen. It's a pleasure.
0: So, as I mentioned, at the end of every podcast, I always say I want to thank our listeners for doing the hard and heavy lifting of making the world a better place. Uh, we really need your help. <laughs> Speaking from a citizen of the United States, we really need your your help and of the world, of course. Um, I know Chad and I try to do our part on our own individual way, but you guys are out there every day making a big difference. I thank you for that. I just want to remind you that you need to come first, as Chad said. You're no good to your family, your friends, yourself, your employees, your cause if you don't prioritize yourself. So, you know, the first thing you should be thinking about when you wake up every morning isn't what you have planned for that day for work. You be thinking about how am I going to get my exercise routine in today? How am I going to eat right? How am I, how am I going to do take some time for myself uh, so that I can be the best I can be on a daily basis, on a yearly basis? So please consider that. I know it's hard, and I know you can do it. So other than that, I want to wish everybody to have a great day. And again, welcome to today's uh, entrepreneur. I'm sorry, nonprofit MBA podcast. See you later.